0: Uh, well, if you have your Bible, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 9 through 16 this morning. And, you know, when, when you come, when you're committed to expository preaching, which we are here, which means you open up the scriptures and you work your way through books of the Bible at a time and sections of the Bible at a time, when you come across a passage that like the one we're in this morning. Those of us who are committed to expository preaching, we feel like we have to justify our approach. I mean, why would you spend a Sunday morning talking about the enrollment age for first century Ephesian widows? Doesn't seem to have a lot to do with us. It doesn't seem to have a lot of relevancy, does it? That's what this morning this uh, passage talks about. Well, one of the reasons we don't skip passages like this one is because we believe... That all Scripture is is breathed out by God, and it's actually profitable for us. All Scripture. Because all Scripture, in some way or another, bears witness to Jesus. The the written Word testifies to the living Word, uh, who is Himself the true life. Sometimes people... uh, criticize expository preaching, they say, well, it'd be much more meaningful maybe to take a topic like marriage or family or fear or anxiety or self-loathing or something like that and just deal with it from a topical perspective rather than trying to march through the Scriptures verse by verse. That's a, it's become a more uh, common criticism as of late. Um, and yet, I mean, we believe the Bible has things to say about parenting and, and marriage and fear and self-loathing and all of those things but the model that we see throughout redemptive history is God's heralds, God's preachers, actually opening up the scriptures and systematically explaining them. In fact, the best example of this is, of course, the person of Jesus himself. On the day of his resurrection, uh, Jesus, or two men, are walking along this road from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus. And Jesus catches up with them and and enters into their conversation. They don't know it's Jesus, but Jesus kind of sidles up next to them and starts talking with them. And what Jesus does is he he exposits the Scriptures from the very beginning, from Moses, the first five books of the Bible, then the prophets, then the writings, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and so on. And he interpreted them, we're told. He showed them how the Scriptures were all about him. And so the fact that he actually verbally interpreted the scriptures means that he was preaching. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus was about seven miles. And so if the average person were walking seven, seven miles, it would take around two and a half hours, you know, if you're just going at a, at a regular pace. So these men got to hear Jesus preach for two hours over two hours, as they were walking with him. And in that time, again, he explained, he opened up the scriptures and systematically explained to them, showing them how all the Bible actually testifies about him. Now, Jesus surely peppered in some illustrations in there. If you preach for two and a half hours, you need some stories. And Jesus, of course, had stories that he could tell that were unlike anybody else's illustrations. Who else could say, you know, there was this one time when, My friends sailed out to sea while I was praying, and they just left me. Um, But I just walked out on the water for a few miles and caught up with them. There's an illustration that nobody else can say, right? And this is, so Jesus had captivating illustrations. Or maybe maybe he said, well, one day my friends and I came across this uh, naked man in the middle of the road who was possessed by a thousand demons, terrorizing everyone. But I told the demons to leave the man and to torment a pack of pigs, and then the demons went into the pigs, and the pigs ran off a cliff. So, that, so Jesus had these stories, but here's the thing. He, he could tell some incredible personal illustrations, to be sure, but what he did that captivated these two traveling companions was, again, was he showed them how all the Scriptures, from beginning to end, find their fulfillment in him. He exposited the text with an aim of revealing himself Therein. Now, what happened to these men? Well, after Jesus left them, according to Luke 24, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? Jesus explains the Scriptures in a way that, that takes them back to Himself, and their hearts were set on fire. Their affections for Jesus were magnified and they're motivated to be on mission, as the rest of Luke 24 tells us. All because, again, Jesus explained the scriptures to them. I was I saw this video the other day. It's a seven-minute video that I've, I've included in the elder training track because it was so meaningful to me. It's two, two Baptist preachers and a Presbyterian preacher. They're sitting down talking about their early days of ministry, and they, they talk about how and they each had this occasion somewhere along the road where they they discovered some of their old sermons in a, in a box. For one guy, it was in his garage. Another guy was in, in his office, and they came across these old sermons. And they all said they were so embarrassed by their old sermons, with, with the way they preached, you know, when, in their early days. And what they said was that they started out in their in their sermons, they were just sort of sort of beating people over the head with the rules. They wanted to conform people into a certain way of living, and as they spent years in the Word, preaching week after week, verse by verse. They realized, you know, that the Scripture is about Jesus. And so uh, this one statement that one man makes as as they sort of wrap up this video was so moving to me. He said, what I want to do now when people come and they gather together, he said, I want them to leave floating so in love with Jesus as they realize the the person and work of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made for him. We we preach the scriptures, we look at the scriptures, and all with an aim to getting to Jesus. And here's why we're looking at this section on the enrollment of widows. Yeah, it has some important things to teach us about life in the church and how to care for the least of these, but it will reveal some beautiful things, I think, about God and his salvation and even us as well. So 1 Timothy chapter 5 Uh, Let me read just the first two verses, 9 and 10, for starters. Let a widow be enrolled, if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So we saw last week, uh that one of the problems at the church of Ephesus was there were there were women who had been widowed by their husbands and their surviving family members that is to say their their sons and daughters were not caring for them they were they were neglecting to care for their widowed parents now these widows ranged in the early church from as young as 19 or 20 because remember sometimes young ladies would get married at 17, 16, 17, 18. And so some of the widows could have been as young as 19 or 20 or as old as the late, mid to late 60s. According to most historians, the average lifespan for a woman in, in that culture was around 31. The average lifespan for a man was right around the 40 years of age mark. Now, this was impacted, of course, by a high mortality rate among infants. But either way, people didn't live nearly as long as we do. And so because there were so many widows, there was conflict uh, as it relates to who's supposed to get what and who's supposed to be cared for by whom. And so Paul's counsel is what any good man's counsel would be. He says, make a list, right? Apparently Paul agreed with me. How can anything be done get done without a list? And so he says, make a list of those widows who need to be cared for. And included on that list would, would also be most likely... Uh, the widows who could serve the church by caring for orphans, by by nurturing those who were sick, by comforting victims of persecution, discipling others, and so on. And on this list, again, of those widows who were to be cared for by the church were to be the names of widows who were over 60 years of age. So now, again, that 60 years old is, is young, very young today. Uh, but then when the average uh, lifespan is only in the, the mid-30s at best, on average, Uh, This was was very old, and these widows were to be enrolled or cared for the church indefinitely if, Paul says, they've been faithful to their husband, they had a reputation for good works, which Paul explains as showing hospitality, serving the saints, raising up their children to know and love God. Now, it wasn't that the other widows couldn't be supported, and it certainly wasn't that the church was supposed to turn her back on the other widows, But the church would enter into this formal, lifelong relationship only with those widows who met these qualifications. The whole chapter of this letter, this portion of this letter, is devoted to the different scenarios in which the church might find herself as it relates to widows, which begs a question, I think, why such careful thought about widows? And one could even ask, why were they? Why would anyone care about widows in that age? They were certainly written off. They had nothing to offer society. They were the least of these, to be sure. No one else in first century Greco-Roman world cared about widows at all. They had zero standing. Why this section in this letter? Well, even though some widows and their families were taking advantage of the church, Paul knew, and so did the elders at Ephesus, just how important it was that the church look after the widows because... They recognize something very important about God, and that is God is on the side of the weak and the the abandoned. We see this throughout the scriptures, Psalm 68, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Exodus 22, God says, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry one more, Deuteronomy 27, God pronounced, Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. See, Timothy being trained in the Hebrew Scriptures, he knew these passages. The elders of the church at Ephesus, they knew these passages. They knew that these were not just arbitrary instructions, but commands that actually flowed from the very character of God. Now, here's the first point I want to make this morning from the text. At the heart of God is a relentless concern to see the helpless rescued. There's a reason that Paul writes these spirit-inspired words to Timothy. Clearly, it was important that God's people provide for the least of these, and that hasn't changed. The church still has an obligation to care for the least of these widows Orphans, those who have been written off, those who have been marginalized. And I'm very grateful to say that I think here at Capshaw we do a very good job of this. We have ministries that, that work in this and, and people who are passionate about this and, and those who rally around others to make sure that, that widows and orphans are cared for. So surely this is, this is part of the, the reason this was written. But Paul's not just giving administrative advice. This is not just sort of uh, instructions on how to organize the church's widow ministry. This is a subtle reminder of God's priorities. It's a subtle reminder of the faithfulness of God. This very God who Paul described just a few paragraphs earlier as the living God on whom we have set our hope. See, the scriptures reveal to us a God who is overflowing with compassion. A God who deeply cares about the marginalized. A God who delights in coming to the rescue of those who are utterly broken. Those who have no hope outside of Him. And this, I think, I'm sure of it actually. This is good news for us this morning on many fronts. When you feel most abandoned, when you feel most rejected, when you feel most helpless, you can know for sure that God is there and He sees you. He hasn't turned His back on you. He he is your refuge and your strength. He will not leave you. When you've been wronged by someone, perhaps in in horrible ways that it hurts even to talk about. You know, you ever been hurt so badly that just just to articulate the way you've been hurt just seems to magnify the pain. When you've been hurt in that way, when you've been rejected by someone that you cared so much about, someone that you trusted, you can know for certain that God will stand beside you. It's actually His delight to defend those who have no one else to speak for them. It's God's pleasure to come to the aid, to come to the rescue of those who are helpless. Now, look at verses 11 11 through 14. It gets more complicated as we move along. Paul says, But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. And then look at 14. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, this is so interesting and difficult. In verse 12, Paul says that, He says that young widows who desire to marry bring on condemnation on themselves. But then in verse 14, he actually encourages young widows to remarry and have children. So he asks the question, what's going on here? What gives here? Well, there are two interpretations of this, and I think both of them are viable. The first one argues that there were some widows in the church who had made a vow to... Made a vow to remain single and celibate and to focus on focus their lives on ministry within the, the local church. And then they had gone back on that vow. So there's some who argue that there are those who have have made that they, they vowed to the church, we're going to spend the rest of our lives. We've lost, I've lost a husband, I'm going to spend the rest of my life caring for the needs of the local church, and then they reneged on that vow. In fact, there are those who argue that the phrase in verse 12, having abandoned their former faith, uh, should best be read as having abandoned their former pledge, and that Greek word pistis can mean faith, it can also mean vow or pledge. And so again, there are those who say, look, here's what was going on, there were were widows who who had been widowed at a younger age, they made a commitment to the church to care for the needs of the church, and then they all of a sudden became enamored with someone, They, they fell in love and they got married, and they went back on their vow. And that was the problem. It's kind of like, well, on a much smaller scale, but when I was a young man, I started playing. Someone introduced me to disc golf. Have you ever played disc golf before? I know some of you have. It's a fun, uh, a fun exercise. And when I was introduced to this, as was my custom at the time, my personality, I just jumped all in. So I was all into this disc golf. I went and I got the best equipment. You have different discs. There's a driver. There's a mid-range. There's a putter. So I went and got all the, the, the stuff. And one day, and I was loving it, I was have, having a good time you know, learning this game, playing this game. One day I went out to play a fairly challenging course with a friend of mine named Joe. And Joe said to me the last minute, he said, Hey, do you mind if my wife Ashley joins us? She, she wants to, she'd like to you know, see what disc golf is all about. I said, No, that'd be great. I, I loved Joe and Ashley. I still do, uh, a married couple that I uh, met when I was young. But it, on the way to the the, uh, the, disc, co- the disc golf course... Ashley started talking trash. She was a real trash talker the whole time. She's really trying to get under my skin. From the moment we arrived at the course, she kept kneeling me, telling me how she was going to destroy me at disc golf, even though she'd never played the game. And so in a moment of complete hubris, uh, on my part, I said to her as we were walking up to the first hole, I said, Ashley, if you beat me today at this game, I'll take my whole bag of discs, I'll take all my equipment, and I'll throw them in the middle of that lake right there. That's what I'll do if you beat me. And I'll never play this game again. That was the vow I made to Joe and Ashley. Well, I had no idea that she was a disc golf prodigy. She, uh, she was, it was like she was born to play this game. She actually beat me. And so I honored my word. I took uh, my equipment. I swung it over my head like David did the smooth stone when he killed Goliath. And I threw it into the middle of the lake. And I watched it splash down and cascade to the bottom of the lake. And I never played again. I've never played since. But here's a problem. Just last week, I met one of Capshaw's members by the name of Levon Wolf, who plays disc golf. He's actually an expert at disc golf, owns his own company or something. And he asked me to play disc golf. So I'm thinking, like, I, don't, I'm, I really don't know what to do. I've made a vow <laughs> when I was a young man. That I, that I would never play again. So I've got to go, I've got to call Ashley or Facebook Ashley and say, look, I need you to relent. I need you to release me uh, from this vow. So what was happening in the first century is not really a lot like that. Um, but there was a situation where these widows had made vows and they had gone back on their vows. And so some would say that this was the problem. But I think there's a better interpretation. And I think what happened was the phrase abandon their faith is actually a reference to these young widows who perhaps because of their burning desire to marry, maybe it was lust, maybe it was loneliness or whatever it is, they had actually remarried outside of Christ. So they had married outside of Christ and because of that, they actually were led away from their faith, led in fact to a rejection of their faith. Now this happens, doesn't it? And I've seen the destruction That's been caused by this. It's not just young adults, by the way. It's older adults as well. Those who marry outside of Christ, despite the counsel of those people around them, despite the people who love them, say, you don't know what you're getting into. They say, but you don't understand. I love her. You don't understand. I love him. And so they marry outside of Christ, which sometimes leads to a life of spiritual loneliness. If God doesn't bring that person to saving faith. It leads to all kinds of hardship. This is why we've said countless times to our kids, and I know they're they're probably tired of hearing it, but we've said over and over, and we mean it. When you start thinking about dating someone, we don't care if they're tall or short, if they're big or small, black or white, what school they went to, what career they pursue. What we do care very deeply, though, is that they love Jesus. We want to make sure they love Jesus. I mean, I don't care what they're going to do for a career. I don't care what, what family they're from, what school they went to, what their sports allegiances are. But we do care if they love Jesus. So do they? we say, do they, do they love Jesus? Do they have hearts that are supple, the kind that are characteristic of hearts that have been made alive in Christ? Look at what happens to those who then marry outside the faith. Verse 15, Paul says, for some have already strayed after Satan could we read a more harrowing or more frightening phrase than this? Some have strayed after Satan. That doesn't mean they'd become Satan worshipers, but it meant that they're actually doing Satan's work. They were going around house to house, stirring up division. They become gossips, busybodies, saying things they shouldn't. But as bad as these things were, that's not what Paul says condemns them. One of the most frightening statements is also verse 11. When their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. What's the primary issue here? It's their passions. That's the problem. It's actually, it's what's deep inside of them, what's drawing them. Their passions have drawn them away from Jesus, resulting not only in all kinds of evil and and church-harming deeds, but in the abandonment of their faith. And here's what I think Paul is getting at. This is our second point. More important than what we do is what we love. For what we love determines what we do. See, when we look at sin, we, we almost always tend to look at we, we look at it in terms of behavior, don't we? You know, we lie, we cheat, we lust, we steal, we, we gossip, we covet, whatever. We look at those as sins, and those are sins. Those are real sins. But we almost always tend to look at sin in terms of behavior, in terms of actions. But the Bible talks about sin in deeper ways. The Bible talks about those wrong actions as being the culmination of a heart that pursues what the heart really loves. Jesus' brother James says, Let no one say what he is tempted. I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James says God is perfect. God is holy in every way. There's no darkness in him. His ways are pure. His thoughts are pure. His motives are pure. He is aware of sin, but he's not tainted by sin. Neither does he tempt anyone else to sin. When we sin, that's on us, not God. James says each person is tempted when he's lured, he's enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin and sin death. James uses kind of a fishing analogy, right? You ever seen, of course, you probably have ever been fishing. You've seen, you've seen a, 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 what do you call it, a bobber. You've seen the bobber on top of the water. You've seen it go up and down, fishing, uh, sort of uh, nibbling on the, the bait. The fish may wiggle and squirm and fight, but ultimately, he's drawn in. Desire becomes sinful when we long for something, pleasure, status, reputation, comfort, success, more than we long for God. To say it another way, we sin when we desire or love other things more than we desire or love God. Now, again, the Bible certainly views behavior, certain behaviors as, as against God and sinful. But as counselor and theologian David Paulson writes, sin also includes what we simply are. And the perverse ways we think, want, remember, and react. Most sin is invisible to the sinner because it's simply how the sinner works, how the sinner perceives, wants, and interpret things. The core insanity of the human heart is that we violate the first great commandment. We will love anything except God, unless our madness is checked by grace. And so these, these young widows, they were willing to give up anything. They were willing to even marry someone who was outside of the faith, which, which was just a, as big a deal then as it is now. And they were, they were lured away. They were drawn away until they ultimately rejected their faith in Jesus. Now, when we read that the real problem here is actually our passions, what we love. We see that the problem is bigger than just the treatment of widows. And we also see the problem is not just theirs, it's ours. In many ways, we're no different than the young widows going back and forth on our commitments, vacillating constantly on the things we love. Really not much different than the negligent children who had failed to take care of their widowed mothers. Our passions are stirred by other things. We're distracted by so many other things. None of us has loved God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength the way we've been commanded to. But there's a reason this letter of Paul was meant to be read at one time to a group of people who heard it in its entirety... Before Paul offers these household rules on the treatment of widows and how to care for, for the least of these, he informs us of a very important truth a few paragraphs earlier in the same letter. 1 Timothy 2:5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. A ransom is a payment. A steep price paid for the freedom of another. Jesus actually paid for our misguided and impure loves with his own life. And in fact, this was actually all part of God's plan. Sending Jesus to rescue a broken world was all part of God's plan. See, this part of Paul's letter is definitely about the care of widows. Please hear me say that. It's definitely about the care of the widows. It's definitely about the church's responsibility to look after and provide for those who have been written off, those who have been left behind. But it's about more than that. It's a testimony to God's faithfulness. It's a testimony to God's very specific plan to rescue the most helpless sinners like you and me. Widows are helpless. And, and God has a plan imparted through His Apostle to care for widows in their time of need. But do you know who's even more helpless than widows? Every single person who's outside of Christ. Because every single person who's outside of Christ has absolutely no hope and no ability to save himself or herself. He can't work enough. He can't do enough. She can't give enough. She can't serve enough. Everyone who's outside of Christ is completely helpless with no hope of saving himself or herself. In fact, the reality is we're born into a helpless state, apart from God, under his wrath, with no hope to remedy our own condition. But God's grace and mercy for widows is only a harbinger of a bigger, more amazing demonstration of his grace. And here's what it is, our third point. God's concern for the helpless Revealed in his instructions for widows is most powerfully displayed in his plan to save a lost world through his son. Paul says, yeah, care for widows, but I want you to understand something about the nature of God here. This is a God who's so concerned about those who are helpless that he will go to extreme lengths to take care of, to rescue those who are lost, those who are abandoned, those who are broken. And who who, who could argue that our world is not broken? See, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time, it sent shockwaves throughout the world, the physical world and the spiritual world. This is why our world is so messed up. The curse that was brought on by Adam and Eve's rebellion. This is why death exists. This is why we have widows and widowers, because of sin. This is why I've done three funerals in the last four months. This is why people get sick. This is why hatred exists. This is why husbands and wives fight with each other. This is why nations war against each other. And and on a more, I guess, intimate level, this is why people are constantly looking for answers. Answers to, to their own loneliness. Answers to their own lack of peace. Answers to their own emotional ups and downs. We may not think about it a lot and but I think we realize it on some level that what happened in that garden by that tree on that day greatly impacted us. From that point on, every human being, every one of Adam's descendants would be born alienated from God and not just alienated, not just separated from God, but born as objects of his wrath. But remember the first point I made at the heart of God is a relentless concern to be the, to see the helpless rescued This applies not just to widows, not just to widowers, not just those over 60 or those under 60. Even as God is announcing all the horrors of the curse, way back in the garden, God makes it clear he will not abandon his humanity. He will not leave his people in their hopeless and helpless condition. He will send a rescuer. In fact, He reveals his plan in Genesis 3, which kind of sets the stage for the whole Bible. God says to the serpent, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seat and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. The rest of the Bible is the unveiling of the he, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And the Bible traces that seed of the woman from Adam to Seth to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And then from Judah ultimately to David and finally to Jesus Christ. Jesus, the seed of the woman, would live a perfect life, die on a cross, be raised again, conquering death and hell, announcing Satan's defeat and the imminent restoration of everything that was lost by the fall. And this was all part of God's plan. What Adam failed to do, that is obey God perfectly, Jesus actually accomplished. And through his obedience, he will restore the brokenness of humanity through the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the return of Jesus. He will make right in a thousand ways everything that's wrong with this world. And what does he call us to do? Believe. Believe. Believe in God's Son and His death, His resurrection. Believe in His perfect life. Believe that it was for our sin that Christ came. Believe that those who are in Christ are actually set free, forgiven, raised to new life themselves. Yes, this passage is about the care of widows, but I think it's easy to miss what it reveals about God to us, and that is His concern for the written off. And I'll wrap up this morning with a quote from one of my favorite authors and bloggers who writes this, he's talking about, yeah, okay, we see the things to do. There are plenty of things to do. He says, and this is not on your screens, but he says, of course, there's plenty of good to do in this world. Good we do for our family, friends, and enemies. But all the good we do, we may do, is not the good that matters most. What matters most, what is of utmost importance, is recognizing the wonderful plan that God has for our lives. And that wonderful plan is simply this, to crucify and resurrect us with Jesus. To divorce us from our own works and our own doing and to marry us to the works and doing of Jesus. To baptize us into that body that bore our sins and to resurrect us to a brand new life in the living body of Jesus. The church is to be the vessel of God, the instrument of the, in the Redeemer's hands, caring for the least of these. But lest we think when we read the Scripture it's all about what we're supposed to do, the care that we're supposed to provide, we're constantly reminded of the work and the help and the rescue of another. Even in a passage about the care of widows, Let us not miss the beauty and the majesty and the care of our sovereign king who loved us while we were dead in sin, who cared for us while we were utterly helpless, cared for us so much that he sent his son so that we could be made right with him, brought into his family, welcomed to a seat at his table, inheriting eternal life and all the blessings in the heavenly realms. Let's pray.